week's content that I want to address, and that last week was regarding um, the will of man as it was created in sinless man in the garden. And that was our focus. We didn't get beyond that of understanding the image of God in relationship to the authority to exercise independent will, which is distinct from a will that doesn't have the legal right, the, the authority to exercise itself independently, which is uh, we see in the angelic will. So angels obviously have a will or they can't rebel, but did they have permission to exercise that will independently of God? Um, whereas mankind did have that in his created being. That as he was created, being in the image of God, he was like God more than the angels in that respect that he had authority um, over his will. That is expressed by subduing the earth, um, by uh, having dominion here. Those are the key words we looked at in Genesis last week. Uh, and that was our focus. So any questions or comments over that part of the content as we, before we move forward? I don't want to leave anyone too much in the dust. For those of you who were here, if you had something that that brought up. All right, the question is, if we talk about that man is a different kind than of angels, can they co but they, we find them commingling in Genesis uh, and producing the Nephilim, I think is what you're referring to. So are we uh, fully different kinds? And again, um, the distinction here is yes, because the Bible describes that. Uh, the capacity to have... Uh, Physical relations, again, the angels in rebellion, they were not image bearers. Mankind, uh, even in his state of lostness, which we're going to talk about tonight, are, are the image bearers. And really, in, in respect to this, is really the only distinguishment that, um, uh, in terms of the nature, uh, obviously, angels function differently uh, to a degree, but in terms of what was it that Satan saw, that Lucifer saw at God's creative work that was enviable for him, all right? What was it that God did for man they didn't do for, for angels? And when we bring this down to understanding the distinction of what it means to be in the image and likeness of God that is not shared with the angels. Uh, and so therefore, we have to limit the list of what we think the image is and therefore the functional theologians that want to say well it's dominion having dominion is something is the image of god um, and angels don't have dominion they have servanthood okay um, but obviously they were able to commingle with man um, and produce offspring and so uh, they have a physicality we often talk about angels being spirit beings, but they obviously have an appearance. Every representation of them is with an appearance, including uh, God's instruction to the cherubim and uh, both on the mercy seat and in the temple uh, adornments. Uh, and so they had physical presence. They looked like humans when we encounter them with Abram and other instances uh, with Daniel uh, even to the point of calling them 
uh, the man. Uh, and certainly we see very similar qualities between them. Uh, and so we have to really, that, 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 that contrast pairs our list down really fast. And so, but there is a distinguishment in Scripture between the sons of God or the angelics and mankind and of Satan's. They are limited creatures. They are not unlimited. Satan is not everywhere all the time. We give him too many divine qualities. So he has spatiality. He is a limited in knowledge to what he knows. And the question is, what do we have that he doesn't? And now it's the area of authority. I don't know if that really answers you. Yes, Mr. Schmidt. And in, we, we don't find angels having the breath of life. We don't find, that's why we don't find the record of their creation. That's why most of most theologians would contend they were created prior to what Genesis 1. And so we don't find them dying. They're eternal beings. They get under eternal punishment. We don't really find them with the breath of life that they would cease to exist, um, certainly with great powers. And that's why once we intermingle angelic genetics is how we would understand it. With human genetics, we came up with uh, modified humans, um, which were giants. Not just in terms of large sizeness, but knowledge and power and things like that that um, were not God's intention. And so, yeah, we, we don't have a record which tells us that it precedes um, at least the creation of man. And so um, that the angels were witnesses, really, of the creation and its order. Yes? First of all, we don't have a lot of information about when we When we come to the Nephilim and that process, um, it's obviously that it is something God sees as a manipulation of his creation. And so they're manipulating his created order uh, on multiple levels. And it wasn't just the violence in the land. It was looking around and realizing that that manipulation penetrated extensively in the population and hence God's desire to destroy that. And really we... we what a lot, this is going to sound really weird for you, but um, we actually have an enormous amount. We have more information in one book, extra biblical, than we have in all of the Bible combined. That's the book of Enoch. That talks extensively about that. And whether we like it or not, or whether you want to believe that the book of Enoch is inspired or not, Jude references it. And hence, I have no problems with if. If the Bible itself can reference that book, I think we can reference that book, and we can derive a lot of information about their fall and all of and their characteristics and things like that, their association with the stars of heaven, uh, and thing which the Bible does in Revelation. Um, and so we have as much information in that one little book of Enoch as the rest of Scripture. Really, uh, the descriptions of them we we certainly know there's classes of angels, so. Um, they are different kind of being, but they within themselves have classifications, just like we do. We have male and female. 
and and um, we can look at other physical or mental or um, even spiritual designations between them, rich, poor, economic, um, but they have distinct purposes and responsibilities. The class of angels that fell were of a high class. And, and so when we talk about were there other angels that are of different appearance or whatever, well, obviously Isaiah describes the seraphim, the cherubim um, are described by, um, in the Torah for the adornment of the, um, uh, the, temp, the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And so obviously they're winged creatures. Well, we aren't winged creatures. So we have a physical distinction there. Um, and then there's other creatures that aren't necessarily even described in the angelic realm um, in, in heaven. And that's, I think, probably what you're referencing in, in Revelation. Uh, we don't necessarily identify them as angelic. Um, whenever we find men of Scripture, they're able to identify these people. Now, technically, the word angelos in Greek just means messenger, and it can be a man. Uh, in fact, you have some pastors that are out there adamant that we don't know anything about that all angels mean is messengers and anyone can be a messenger. And of course, we see that in Revelation to the letters of the churches. You know, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your candlestick or your angel, uh, your messenger to your church. Um, is that an angel or is it a messenger? And so we have that dilemma, that distinction as well. Um, but again, we have some extra biblical information. Uh, we have uh, what, what is described here, and we certainly recognize that the, that the what do I want to use, the um, effect of the commingling with men um, was pervasive on the face of the earth. It was a huge problem of perverting God's created order which is what we're doing now. We're perverting him. And uh, one doctor is making the connections of all the vaccines and saying we're basically putting um, serpent DNA into people. And not just serpent venom, which is remdesivir, um, which is derived from serpent venom, but serpent DNA in the COVID-19 shots. So we have that contention. That's where it comes from and, and COVID itself. And so we have um, this spike protein, which is identified, well, we're manipulating the whole human definition physically in terms of what are we genetically. And so uh, that's what was going on then. Let's press on, shall we? Uh, we want to get into sin. No, we don't want to do sin. We want to get... <laughs> terrible. Let's get into where sin's effect. So the question now is, are you in the image of God? And we address this a little bit, and that is, well, first of all, you weren't created. You were begotten, so you inherited something from your Father. And that is still using the word image and likeness. And with that, I would contend that you are inheriting the image. So the image is still uh, defines what it means to be human, distinct from what it means to be something else, uh, creaturely or angelically. 
you still carry this. Uh, we can question whether the Nephilim had that as uh, half human at least, uh, but uh, the, and very probably, because uh, it doesn't describe them as angel creatures, but as giant humans. And so we have this effect. So we have sin and its effect upon humanity. Now, why is this so important? It's so important because what Augustinian theology does and that is rehearsed and repackaged by Calvin is to say, well, man, because of sin, has zero capacity to do anything good or to recognize anything good or to come to any kind of positive conclusion toward God. And, and so therefore, uh, that term they use is total depravity, which is really um, not, not a genuine word. Uh, that is, they, they use it, but that's not what they mean by it. What they really mean is that we are total incapacity. That man is incapable to do good, to acknowledge good, to want after good, to see good, and really to respond to God with any kind of faith statement unless God makes him new again. So that's why they have regeneration prior to salvation. So the Holy Spirit has to come in and remake you. You have to be born again by the Holy Spirit's regeneration. Regeneration means born again. And then you will have faith in God. And only then can you have the capacity, the ability to trust in Jesus. So therefore, God has to come and change you before you can believe in him. Which means that if he doesn't do that, you cannot accept him. You can't even know him. You can't even acknowledge good from evil and things like that. That you will never choose to do good. And the question is, is that your experience? Is your experience that no men can do anything good? Is that the your understanding and so we are i can go to lots of passages that talk about the experience of men and we have those recorded for us and i just added one on my list while we were singing because it came to my mind during one of the songs um and and but we can but the claim is well those are just anecdotal they are not systemically understanding the nature of man and the nature of god so what I've done is I've gone behind that and I've addressed those issues uh, through the avenue of image bearing and likeness. So we are inheriting image bearing. And this takes us, of course, to the birth of, uh, not Cain and Abel, actually, it's kind of interesting, but into the birth of Seth. And that's in chapter 5 of Genesis Verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. And thus, what God gave to Adam, Adam gave to his son. But in the transfer of God giving it to Adam and Adam giving it to son, Adam did something to the image. He marred it, he, he spoiled it, if you will, with sin. And so now, in addition to this image and likeness of being the authority,
authority to have, uh, and, I, and I'm just, I'm writing a chapter now, and I've really just finished, I think I finished it, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, talk about the place of faith. We're going to talk about faith under the heading of Holy Spirit. It sounds weird, but why are we talking about faith of men under, under our relationship with the Holy Spirit? Because uh, I'm going to address irresistibility of the Holy Spirit. So where does faith come from? I think it is tied very strongly to the authority that we can believe what you want to believe. You have that liberty. With liberty, to have liberty, you have to have authority behind it. Uh, and so God has granted that to Adam. Adam didn't destroy it. He marred it. In other words, God never rescinded that gift. He didn't take it back and says, oh, now you've used your authority the wrong way, and now I'm going to rescind that, and it's no longer going to be who you are. No, he has woven it into what defines man. Now, we've taken that, and we have done some damage to it. Adam damaged that through sin, and we really see the effect of that after the flood. What, what happens after the flood in terms of man's dominion? Your dominion changed. Something happened different from pre-flood to post-flood, not with man, what constitutes man, but with the rest of creation. Now we're going to see that the ground is going to respond to sinful man. And instead of man having dominion over the ground, and can, the ground is going to cross its arms and just try to get something out of me. Right? It says you're going to have to use the sweat of your brow to get the ground to bring forth its produce. You're going to have to work a lot harder than you used to. Um, and so your, your thumb went from green to brown, or to black maybe. Um, and so that's just not going to be as responsive. Does that mean it's not going to respond at all? No. Um, but there was one thing that happened after the flood. What was that? What happened in the created order that changed? Yeah, you'll, the, the animals will have a fear of man upon them. Now, we usually think that all the animals are going to run away from us. That, that really doesn't, isn't what that Hebrew word really means. It talks about that, our, that we're going to have a negative relationship with, with creatures. That just like the ground is cursed in Genesis at the fall of man to Adam, now we're going to extend that to the animal kingdom that they're going to not be cooperative with us. That they're going to not just, uh, that they're going to run away from you. They're going to not um, allow you to use their wool, their milk, their uh, <laughs> meat, uh, I guess. Uh, they just aren't going to cooperate with that. Now we're going to have to employ not only labor for gardening, but you're going to have to have labor for animal husbandry. It's gonna, you're going to have to have fences. Can you imagine being able to farm with complete dominion? You just tell your cows, I need some milk and let's get busy. And the chickens, I need an egg, let's go. Or you're going to roll it over to you. I don't know, but um, we can do all kinds of imaginary stuff. Um, but the, the realm there was I have dominion and what is what you are here to serve me. Now that changes. And so we see the effects 
of sin on our dominion role, but that doesn't remove the authority we have over, we still have that command to have dominion. We still are those that are called to subdue the earth, to multiply upon his face and to have dominion there, but it is affected, it is made more difficult because of Adam's sin and then because of the sin of the violence and all that uh, in the antediluvian period that we see its effect later. So the question really, though, is something that's really only a paragraph, or I think it's two paragraphs in this chapter, um, is did man lose the ability to choose good when he sinned? Because that's really what Augustine theology is, is that you can't do anything good. Now, we have some scripture talks in that direction, right? What kind of scriptures? All right, Isaiah says that that even your righteousness is as filthy rags to God. Now, that's an interesting statement. What does that mean? Exactly. It's really your self-righteousness. So that means that men can do right, but if you think that somehow undoes all your sin, you are foolish. Now you're trusting in your own righteousness, and that is what is a filthy rag. But they abuse that verse, don't they? Because the verse doesn't say you can't do righteousness to please God. It says your self-righteousness, your, your trusting in your own righteousness is displeasing to God, which means that you can have righteousness, you can do what's right, and that's very different than a Calvinistic model. Can you respond to God in your current condition of a human in the image of God marred by sin? Now, let's go to Genesis 3. What was the sin in Genesis 3? What sin happened? One of the young people can help me. What was the sin they did in Genesis 3? What did Adam and Eve do wrong? They ate the fruit of the tree. What tree? Not good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? What does that mean when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is your condition after eating that? Is it morally improved or morally declined? You're improved. You have improved your condition. And now, and so during the temptation, Satan states that. Verse 5, it says, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Was Satan lying? No. <laughs> he was deceiving, not lying. There's a difference. Let's go to verse 22 and see that it's true. What Satan told Eve was true. Verse 22 says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. God said your capacity, your moral capacity has now not been destroyed. It has been improved. Does that, I mean, this is, a, a, you've just 
added something to you that God had not instilled in them. Now, had he instilled it in the angels? Possibly. But he had not instilled it in mankind to have that level of discernment. And what we forget somewhere is that the sin was not moral destruction. It was moral improvement. That, and I hate to use that word improvement because sin won't improve you. But the sin was disobedience. Eating of the tree, why did God not want man to have this knowledge? I mean, did he plant the tree because he wanted them to have it and just wasn't, didn't want to give it to them? Wanted them to get it by disobedience? No. In their moral condition prior to sin, they were innocent. It is a condition of innocence. Innocence is not knowing good from evil. Okay? That's the moral condition of innocence. That's why we talk about, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to discipline an infant. It doesn't know the difference between good or evil. And in Jonah, we're said, well, it's good or evil or your left hand from your right hand. And so, you know, when babies get control and understand what their hands can do, now you have a, a, they're beginning to be able to understand good from evil. Um, and so, if I pick up, you know, an infant and they slap me in the face, I'm not going to, you dirty, rotten kid, you know. You, they didn't do that on purpose, right? They don't know the right hand from their left hand. And they're just moving because they got to move their muscles to grow and to make them and to learn how to make them work. Well, they also morally don't know right, the right from wrong good from evil. And so that is the condition of innocence. And God wanted to keep us in a condition of innocence because that enables us to have fellowship with him and with one another in a very idyllic environment. And so when we talk about this as, as, a, as a, a new app for mankind, <laughs> okay, here's a new app I can download. Now I have the knowledge of good and evil. I didn't have it before. And we need to understand that when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became a little bit more like God than they were before, but not necessarily something that God wanted for us. Because in a condition of innocence, you can enjoy life better. You really can. And God wants us to enjoy creation in a state of innocence instead of in the state of this knowledge of good and evil. He knew it was best for us. And so he has a knowledge of the distinction between good and evil. And he recognized that I really want to keep you um, not in the dark, so to speak, although you could use that terminology. I want to keep you um, safe from that. I don't want to have that weight on you. I want you to enjoy creation in a state of innocence. And Paul really talks about this in the New Testament when you get back to the idea of, well, what's, what's the law? You know, well, he says, you know, in Christ, everything is free. Everything is okay. I can do a lot of things, but I choose not to do some things because I know it does injury to other people. It does injury to their faith. It does injury to their, to their walk. It does 
you know, and so I'm not going to do anything that does injury to my brethren, and so I'm going to put those on me. And so I know an idol's nothing. I said, what's the, ma- what's the difference if a piece of meat is laid down in front of a rock before it's put on my plate? Doesn't, it's a rock. It doesn't mean anything. But it means some of the people who used to worship that rock. Okay? And so I can claim complete innocence, or you could even put the word into a degree ignorance, since the word knowledge is being used of the tree, that, that there is some, what's the term? Um, that's uh, Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, there you go. Uh, there is some concept of that here, that innocence or ignorance, ignorance of sin, ignorance of evil, is bliss. And that's why our children can enjoy their child, and that's why it's so hideous when we commit um, heinous acts against innocent children who don't understand good from evil. But they understand pain, and it's a horrible thing. That's why the Bible says better than a millstone be thrown around your neck and thrown in the sea than doing that, than doing injury to one of these little ones in that state where they're not able to process what's good and what's evil. They trust their parent or their relative or caregiver. And so um, that's why that's such a hideous crime is because you're introducing something that child isn't, hasn't developed enough to really engage in. So with this knowledge, and by the way, what I usually tell my kids is ignorance is expensive. Because once you become of age, ignorance is no longer blissful. It's expensive. Um, It costs you all the time. But for for true innocence, ignorance of sin is a condition of bliss. And so I'm not going to load down sin on you. Why did God give the law? Because he didn't want you to be happy in your sin. And so he wants you to understand these are the things that, that condemn you. And so that we can move from that ignorance to a knowledge, boy, I should be, I, I, I can't meet the standard of heaven, and I'm in trouble, so that I can rectify that. That's the purpose of the law, to teach us what sin and, and how miserable we are at trying to be good. doesn't mean we can't be good. It means that our inclination of our heart is toward evil. That does not mean that we are incapable of recognized good from evil. And so when we see the actual sin, I am eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't understand a, a theology that says that sinful man is incapacitated by sin when I see that the first sin added capacity to man morally. It added something to us. We became more like God in an area he really wanted to protect us from, right? You want to protect your children from evil. I don't want them to be, I don't want, I didn't want my children exposed to evil things. I didn't want them to hear bad words. I didn't want to see them bad things. I didn't bad things happen to them. We want to guard our children in their innocence. Well, so did God. And we didn't trust him in that. And now we can't enjoy creation in an innocent state. Now we, but we have something that he had already, that Satan apparently shared already, and that was the knowledge of good and evil. Did God decide to keep us innocent because of what was going on with the angelic community? We, that's all speculation. 
But we know for sure is that man did not lose capacity after sin. He increased capacity after sin. He became a higher moral creature. All right? We have, and, and that's God's words. They have become like us, knowing good from evil. And so, uh, and this is what uh, is described by the woman as, as desire to make one wise, is the word she uses, with that kind of worldly wisdom. And so, um, are we still image bearers? Yes. Are we changed? Yes. But not incapacitated. In other words, the change that sin made doesn't mean we're not capable. In fact, it means we are more capable now than before we are the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We are more capable now to know good and evil. But in the Calvinistic perspective, the Augustinian model, really man can only do evil, but they have taken a step back even behind that and say man is incapable of even doing or knowing good. Okay? And that's a problem. And it seems like they forget that when they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they improved themselves. The fruit of the tree improved them. If you think being having greater knowledge is an improvement over being innocent. Okay, God said you could have enjoyed creation in an innocent state, but instead you're going to now know good and evil and you're going to suffer for your days till death in a miserable state because you have this war, this conflict in you that is produced by this enhancement you have brought upon yourself by eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So if you want to blame God for anything, don't blame him for the sin, blame him for the improvement. Okay? He could have put another tree in there of some other improvement that was a not an improvement. But he put in there a thing that, you know, you can trust me or you can disobey and eat this, but if you eat this, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even the designation tells you it's going to give you something, not take something away from you. It didn't make them incapable. It made them more capable morally. And this is a huge, simple thing. And I say, well, it's obvious. It's right there. But it's not obvious to a lot of people. A whole systems of theology are built around man's incapacity to trust in Jesus without Holy Spirit's irresistible work in their life. And that's not what's described here. So are sinful men still have authority? Yes. Is it affected by sin? Yes. Negatively, yes. But in addition to its effect being negative, it's really not on our capacity. It's really on the earth's resistance. Okay? So the ground is now resistant to your authority. The animal kingdom is resistant to your authority. So we use food to bribe them and to, and to train them. Um, I can't just say, you know, out, I just can't go out there and tell deer to walk up and so I can eat them. Um, they're resistant. They run and hide. And I have to trick them and trap them and, and entice them in. 
Um, and so now they're resistant to my authority. But my capacity has actually increased. Now, remember from last week, we're trying to address the statement, well, dead is dead. Was Adam dead in his trespasses and sins once he had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was he dead? By what definition? All right, he was separated from God. Ultimately, the, the, death is, the definition of death is really separation. Physical death is when we are separated from our physical bodies. Um, but spiritual death, and that was going to happen, that began happening in Adam. It was going to take a few hundred years for it to culminate, but it began happening there. But the spiritual separation, the separation between God and man happened pretty much immediately. Now you're under a curse. Instead of in this state of, of perpetual blessing, you're now in a state of curse, being in a curse condition. That curse is that I do not have fellowship with God. That's broken. When the Bible talks about you are dead in your trespasses and sin, it's not saying that you are a corpse. It's saying you are separated from God. Please define the word biblically. And this is what Calvinists are unwilling to do. Dead is not a corpse. Because obviously my body is still walking around. My mind is still functional. Um, and even my moral compass is, in, is there. It is also marred by sin. And I manipulate it. And it can be seared. But the fact that we have a passage that says that all men have a conscience Right? Romans chapter 1. You have evidence of God in creation, in created order. You choose to accept or reject that evidence. If you continually reject it, you will sear your conscience with a hot iron, which means if you keep sitting and keep sitting pretty soon, you will stop feeling the guilt of your sin. Doesn't mean you don't have the guilt, it's just you'll stop feeling it. You're conditioning yourself towards sin. Well, that whole process and how much it takes for that to happen tells you that you have a moral compass. Every man has within him a moral compass. He knows good from evil because we are the offspring of Adam. And one of the things we got from Adam was not just a sin nature, but we have this moral compass and we have this image and likeness that was given to Adam. He passed it on. And so we have authority of self-direction, of self-determination. We have uh, a higher moral compass than how man was created. Uh, we are somewhat more like God because of that. And, and therefore, we still have dominion, although it is being resisted by the earth and by the creatures. And, and that is the condition of man. But we are in all of that, what death is, is separation from God. And it is troubling that all of these people that are sucked into this error are convinced by that one phrase, well, dead is dead. Dead people can't respond to anything. And Jesus, you know, Holy Spirit has to make you alive. Do you realize what that entails? If you're saying that, then you're really saying that Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. Because Holy Spirit 
has to make you alive. I thought Christ's blood was necessary to make you alive, but you can't even receive Christ's salvation unless Holy Spirit makes you alive first. And that is what they teach very clearly. What they mean by irresistibility of the Holy Spirit, that's the letter I in the word tulip. You have an irresistible working of the Holy Spirit. That is, he's going to regenerate you without your permission. He's not going to invite you to be regenerated. He's going to come in and, boom, you're a new person now. Believe in Jesus. Well, I'm already a new person. I don't have to believe anything because I've already been regenerated. Right? Belief becomes secondary. And that's pretty easy because now, you know, I can blame God for people not getting saved. Right? And so we come to this and we ask the question, are we improved or destroyed? And Genesis makes very clear you're improved. But in your improved human state, you are without God in your life. So the improvement to the definition of what it means to be human has come at a cost that now I don't have a relationship with God. And so on the balance, on the scales, which one would you prefer? You want to add this app, or do you want to have an innocent, perfect fellowship with your creator? Okay, that's what's going on here. And so this is really important for us to recognize, well, do I still confront people with the gospel? Yes. Why? Because they still have authority of self-determination. They still have an intact image and likeness. It's been marred by sin. It's bent towards rebellion, but it's still active. Number two, they have an internal moral compass. They are not in a state of ignorance or of uh, innocence. They are not in that state. They know good from evil. It's when that's been seared away that we end up throwing up our arms and says, well, I can't really do anything for you now because you call evil good and good evil. And so Paul in Romans talks about this wrestling in him. I know to do good and, and I don't do it. And we're going to talk about that in terms of the Christian life next week as we finish up this chapter. But I just want to share with you that fundamentally, Augustinian theology fails because it isn't, it isn't biblically based, and it's not even logical. And all these really, really smart people want to say, well, this is a system of theology that can't be broken. And, and I said, you have a system of theology that depends upon one phrase, well, dead is dead. And I can't tell you how many times I've had countless on the ropes, and that's all they end up saying. And they think that that's going to resolve this, and shut me up. And of course, I just tear into them and I was like, define death. And it unravels. I mean, this is simple Sunday school stuff, isn't it? They, they increased and they gained the knowledge of good and evil. They did not decrease with their sin in their capacity. Okay? And we still have the image and likeness being sent from the Father to the Son. So we still have the passing on, the, the delegation of authority. 
We still have command to have dominion, but that dominion is not going to be cooperated with by the rest of the created order. And so now we have to work really hard to have dominion. doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. I still have to go out there and dig up those crazy weeds. It's just a lot more work. Can you imagine a dirt that I say, I don't really want you to grow there. Go away, and it goes away. I want this to grow here. And I just plant the seed. I say, I want you to grow there, and I want you to, and it's fruitful, multiply. I think that's the way it was in the garden. They kept it. They, they had responsibility. They were gardeners um, to keep the garden. And, but they had complete dominion over it, and the earth was cooperative with them. Now the earth doesn't cooperate, and neither does the animals. So you still have dominion. So we still need to approach man, I think, with an invitation, with reasonableness, with recognizing good from evil, and that's why that battle of defining truth is so critical in confronting people with the gospel. Because they can distinguish good from evil. Okay, I'm going to use one example. It wasn't in the chapter very quickly, just to illustrate this. Um, how did Pharaoh respond to Moses? The Bible says he hardened his... Why did he need to do that? Because the argument of Moses and Aaron was persuasive. In fact, it was so persuasive that by what? Um, was it the eighth? Eighth? One, the eighth plague. What was Pharaoh's statement to Moses? I have sinned. Read it. I think it's the eighth, uh, certainly the ninth, and the tenth. You know, I have sinned. Um, Maybe even the seventh. It wasn't long. It was so persuasive that Pharaoh says, I have sinned. That was his response to Moses and Aaron to some of those plagues. Does that sound like someone that doesn't is incapable of knowing good and evil and incapable of doing anything good? Is that a good statement? Yeah, I would love for people to come and say, I have sinned, Pastor. <laughs> well, I don't want them to confess to me like a priest, but I would just like them to acknowledge their sin. Um, what was the problem? He recognized that he had sinned against God and against his people. What was the problem? Once the plague went away, he hardened his heart. Or God allowed him to harden his heart. I know it's translated, God hardened his heart. Um, Pastor Lossing was really the one that opened that up for me. He says, well, the, the real Hebrew term there, the tense isn't shown. God allowed. It's a passive tense. God's the passive allower for Pharaoh to harden his own heart. God let his heart be hardened, is literally what it says. And so whether that was the magicians early on that hardened his heart, or whether it was his, even after the tenth plague, after Israel left, what happened? The people says, what have we done? Who's going to do our work for us now? And that hardened his heart. But he on multiple occasions said, I have sinned. That means what? He had a conscience that was active and could be addressed. It could be uh, 
confronted. It could be uh, truth and power of God and his word can be used. And we need to implement that and take them from just saying, I have sinned, to saying, well, what are you going to do about that sin? And Pharaoh knew he needed to let the people go, but he hardened his heart. And so don't think just because people are sorry for their sin that that equals salvation. That is certainly a necessary step. And then you need to take that, well, are you going to trust in Christ? I have lots of kids, lots of times as a parent that my children were sorry they sinned. They were at least sorry they got caught sinning. Uh, But did that determine in their heart that they were going to stop or that they were going to make this, correct this, or, or ask forgiveness? And so man is still intact. Now we're going to want to talk about, well, what about post-salvation? What happens to this post-salvation? And I'm hoping it'll go a direction different than maybe you might think. Um, It's not developed extensively in the chapter given to you. Um, It's really going to come out a lot more later, but I wanted to touch on it in the midst of talking about image-bearing and likeness. Okay? You have a chance. And by the way, those of you who turned in your comments and corrections. I know there's some typos in this chapter because I caught them myself. Once I There's something about getting it on paper that you see typos more than when you see it on the computer. Uh, and so I appreciate your help and your comments and hang on to those though for at least one more week before giving me that chapter. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the time spent on your word. And we thank you uh, that you are loved us enough to send your son to die for us when we clearly rebelled against you, clearly are deserving of death, of judgment, of eternal punishment. And Lord, we rejoice that you have given us the authority, the right to choose to receive you. And Lord, we pray that we might be active in confronting people with that choice as we engage with them in the days and weeks to follow. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.